All right, we're going to start a new series this morning, and the title of this series is Unpopular. I remember those days, and for those of you who haven't heard my testimony, my story, when I was in those elementary, middle school years, I was an extreme introvert. But there was a part of me that uh, I wanted to be a little more outgoing. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be liked. I did a good job usually with my teachers. I was a, I was a good teacher's pet, but I was still very much an introvert. I found out later I was probably a teacher's pet because I was so scared to say anything I didn't cause any problems, and teachers like kids like that. And, uh, but, but very much an introvert. But there was that cry from the inside that wanted to be popular. Uh, well-known and well-loved and well-liked by everybody else. And uh, as I got older, and especially at about age 16, when I recommitted my life to Christ, I realized that uh, seeking popularity in the world's eyes can get you in trouble. And our goal is not to be popular, and it's not necessarily as a church or as a Christian to be liked by everybody. Our goal is to be like Jesus, uh, whether that is popular or not. And I'll tell you, in this world, in the days in which we live, which I believe we'll see in the text this morning has always been the case, um, it's not popular. And so over the summer, our summer ser- series, we're going to be talking about this subject, unpopular. And what you're going to see in interwoven in this are those seven summits. Some of you remember we, uh, a couple of years ago, went through those seven summits that form a paradigm for discipleship around here, and uh, from both in, in our young ages, from we might say from cradle to tassel in those years of growing up, but also uh, for the adults in our church, a list of core competencies. What does it mean biblically to be a disciple of Christ? And so you're going to see that being a disciple, being a true biblical disciple, is not a popular thing. And we'll see that throughout the scriptures. As we look at several texts where we're called to be unpopular in, in so many ways. It's not the goal. And by the way, you're not just out there trying to make people not like you. So during this series, don't think that I'm just trying to give you ammunition so that people won't like you. And uh, we, we don't just want to give in to some kind of self degradation of, of putting ourselves down and things like that. What I'm talking about is radical discipleship in a rebellious world. Radical discipleship in a rebellious world. And so this morning, as we kind of look at that first summit, that provision summit, starts with the home. I've titled the message, It Starts with the Home. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Two famous verses right here in chapter 24. As you're standing, we'll read these together. Uh, Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15 especially verse 15, is going to be a familiar verse to most of you. They're settling down now in the promised land after much of the conquest, after the uh, conquest of coming back into the promised land. And, And so Joshua, as he has renewed the covenant, says, Therefore, fear the Lord, when you see all caps, that's Yahweh, God's covenant name, With Israel, he says, therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord, Yahweh, the one true and living God. 
He says, but if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today the one you will worship, the gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my family, some translations, as for me and my house, he says, we will worship the Lord. Father, we thank you for this commitment. And Lord, I pray that as we seek to be like Christ rather than liked by the world, that we will decide today that it starts in our homes, that we're going to do everything we can to be a generation that seeks and serves the Lord God, the true and living God who was revealed in Christ. As we sang that creed of belief this morning, help us to live it out day in and day out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. There was a little girl that was a little bit confused because in her home, she had a dad who was uh, an atheist, and she had a mom who was a devout Christian. Evidently, she had been backslidden enough to marry an atheist at some point, but, but she was growing in her faith now. And uh, so the, the little girl in the home was kind of confused. She was hearing all this secular humanism from dad and hearing all the Christian doctrines from her mom. And, and as she got old enough to wonder, you know, where people came from, she went to her dad and she said, Dad, where did we come from? Where do, where do people come from? I mean, like human beings. How did we get here on earth? And her dad began to describe the process of evolution. And he said, ultimately we came from monkeys. Before we were people, we were monkeys. And uh, she went to her mom and said, Mom, where did we come from? And the mom said, "Uh, well, baby, God created Adam and Eve, and they were the first parents. And out of Adam and Eve came every generation. All human beings traced their roots back to Adam and Eve. And, And so she said, well, well, when I asked Dad, he said, from monkeys. And, and the mom was getting ready to argue against evolution when she very cleverly said, oh, I thought you, you were talking about where did my side of the family come from. <laughs> Your dad was talking about his side of the family. Well, that's a, a humorous story and a clever way to answer the question. But, you know, kids, when it comes to where we came from, who we are, where our identity is, what our purpose is in life, more of that is established in the home with conversations with mom and dad than will ever take place in a Sunday school class or a youth group or anything like that. We have to understand as a church, it's important for us to make disciples and preach the truth and explain how God created us in his image and and all of that, but it's got to start in the home. And so as we talk about biblical discipleship, as we kind of review these seven summits and this morning looking at that provision summit, providing that environment in the home where God is loved and where the love of God is proclaimed and where the Word of God saturates all that we do, we'll realize that God has called our homes to, to bring up a generation of disciples that probably in their communities and in their schools and in the workplaces, it's not going to be the popular Answer. Again, we are seeking to be like Jesus, not liked by the world. 
We're living in a time, I believe it was Russell Moore that says, we're, 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 we can no longer summons a moral majority. Why is that? Because the majority aren't living lives of morality. Not that they really ever were, but, but it's not a moral majority. He says it's a prophetic minority. It's not the popular voice. And so our biggest questions in, in, when it deals with purpose in life and God's existence and calling on our lives will be shaped more than anywhere else in the home. And so comparing the importance of the church body, and by the way, when I argue for the home this morning, I'm not stating a case of neglect for the church family and the body of Christ, as we'll see uh, in, throughout this study of unpopular, that God has a place for His church. And we all have a place as members of the body of Christ. We all have a responsibility in and to the body of Christ, the church, the, the family of God. And, and so trying to compare uh, which is more important is kind of like saying which is more important, the brain or the heart. Both of them are necessary for the other, right? And, and so, so we don't get into comparisons there and we don't use the priority of the home as an excuse to neglect our responsibilities in the local church, but out of the overflow of what God's doing in our homes, we become better equipped for the church and vice versa. The church also in this series we'll see is equipping the home. And so we need that Acts 2 discipleship taking place from house to house, and we need that Acts 2 uh, spirit falling on the church evangelism and reaching people with the gospel of Christ, working together in this process. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, before Joshua would lead the children of Israel into the promised land, we have Moses kind of restating the laws and the principles and precepts of God. And we've gone over that passage many times as a church family, most recently during a parent-child dedication time. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read that passage known as the Shema, where the children of Israel were reminded it starts in the home. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and let his word saturate. The principles and precepts of God should be proclaimed, and they should saturate all that you do when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk along the road. It should be posted all over the home. And so they had already heard and they had already understood uh, that the home was going to be the central unit for making what we would call in the New Testament disciples, those who love God, those who are living according to his purposes. Now they are in the land. By and large, they have conquered the land, although there would continue to be battles for years to come. And they are settling in this land where there would be those who disagree with them, who live different lives and worship different gods. Those that they were told again and again, don't be like the people that are already in the land. You stand out from among them. You be different. So Joshua, in this passage that we just read, gives us about what I see are three ways that the home must lead in this process of us being fully devoted Christ followers. And so the first one, we see kind of in these first few words as they reflect back on a previous text is that we need to recognize in our homes God's covenant faithfulness. Our homes need to be a place where we talk about, sing about, pray about, and celebrate God's covenant faithfulness. The passage begins with the word therefore. 
and you've probably heard this before in Bible study courses, but whenever you see the word therefore, you should see what it's therefore. And so, we, yeah, we go back to the uh, preceding verses, and it says, uh, beginning in verse 1, Joshua had assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned Israel's elders, leaders, judges, officers, and they presented themselves before God. Notice Joshua was calling out leaders in Israel to set an example. The, the greatest thing that I can do for you as your pastor, that Pastor Ben can do for you as a minister to families, is not necessarily help disciple you and your children, but model what that looks like in our homes so that you're doing the same in your homes. And so he summons the leaders here who are going to be the models. He says, Joshua said to all of the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates River, and they worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, I led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants that I gave him. He says, I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave the hill country of Seir to Esau as a possession, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt, and you know the story there. He says, then I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt by what I did there, and afterwards I brought you out. And when I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you reached the Red Sea, the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen as far as the sea. Your fathers cried out to the Lord, so he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and he brought the sea over them, engulfing them. Your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt. After that, you lived in the wilderness a long time. So he's saying, through good times and through bad times, you know that from the time I called Abraham, I have been faithful. I have protected, I have provided, I have delivered, I have sometimes had to punish. But he goes on to say, later I brought you to the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You possessed their land and I annihilated them before you. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he repeatedly blessed you, and I delivered you from his hand. God had been faithful to deliver them again and again and again. He says, then you, you crossed the Jordan, came to Jericho, the people of Jericho, as well as the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gergeshites, Hittites, Jebusites, mosquito bites, flashlights, and all the other ites, fought against you, but I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you, and it drove out the two Amorite kings before you. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you the land you did not labor for, and the cities you did not build, though you live in them. You are eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. He's saying, everything that you have is because I am a faithful God. I've been faithful to do what I said I would do. I have called you as my own people. I have provided for you. I have protected you. I've led you along the way. And Israel would often be called to remember all that God had done for them. 
stop as a family and celebrate and remember and say, listen, have you noticed as we walk in the Word and in the ways of God, His hand of protection and provision has been upon us. God has always been faithful. There are families here this morning, some have been through good times, some have been through hard times, even this past week. I can't tell you how many phone calls and text messages I've got with prayer requests because there are some families in our church or connected to our church that are just going through some emergencies and crisis situations. But there is a ring of God's faithfulness in every one of those situations where we've seen the hand of the Lord at work. And so we're to celebrate that. We're to teach the character and nature of God and teach what the Scripture says about who God is, not who who God would be if we were God or what God would be like according to our own opinions, but how has God revealed himself in his word to us and how has that become real in our lives? You need to tell the stories of Scripture, but grandparents, parents in the home, you need to be telling your story of God's faithfulness, God's hand of protection. This past week I was visiting with my Grandma Brown and, and it was one of those times where we just had some time for some one-on-one conversation. And when my grandpa was living, I didn't have a lot of those opportunities. Uh, we used to get tickled because when Grandma and Grandpa Brown were both talking to you at the same time, usually his voice was a little bit louder. And did anybody ever have grandparents that they both talked to you at the same time? You know what I'm talking And you, you were just kind of like trying to catch both of them. And so, and he's been with the Lord for about eight years now, but as I was talking to her, she was telling me stories, and I'm like, I'm sure she's told me this story before, but I didn't remember it. And she was talking about um, uh, being, a, being a little girl walking in the woods, and, and, and there, there, there was a well that had been covered with some uh, rotten boards, and one leg went through, but it was like she didn't fall into that well. She goes, I, I think if God had not saved me from falling in that well, nobody would have ever found me. And, and then she said, and, and you wouldn't be here today if God wouldn't have saved me. And so I, she was just talking about, and she had a memory from many, many, many years ago uh, of God's protection and, and the results of that throughout life. And so parents and grandparents, your children, your grandchildren need to hear those stories of God's covenant faithfulness, how he's provided and protected through the years and who he is and, and how wonderful he is and You may say, I don't feel like I really have a lot to offer the next generation, but your testimony is the greatest thing to offer them. Hebrews 13.5 tells us to be content with what things we have, but to remember that Jesus is the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you can tell the story of how God will never leave you nor forsake you, that becomes a powerful story. Uh, Many of you here this morning have come to be a part of the Trinity family uh, since one of the, my mentor leaders here years ago uh, passed away, but Mr. Joe Aaron. But I remember when he was battling cancer, seeing that sign that, he, that was placed. I don't know if Miss Diane or Mr., Mr. Joe who had placed that in the home, but now I have one on my shelf in my office that simply said this, when you have nothing but God, God is enough. And so when you talk about the sufficiency of God in hard times to the next generation, you're recognizing God's covenant faithfulness to you through the years. Tell the story of your salvation because now we live in the days and age of the new covenant where the new covenant is established 
through a relationship with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, whose blood was shed on our behalf, and by faith we receive the free gift of eternal life when we believe that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the grave, and we put our trust in him, giving him our lives. And so when you did that, you have a testimony, and you need to share that testimony in your home constantly. Yes, they need to hear it preached and taught at church and in Bible schools and and church camps and things like that, but more importantly, they need to hear it consistently communicated in the home. It starts with the home. Now, here's the harder part. Not only do we need to recognize and talk about God's covenant faithfulness and nature and character of God in our home, we need to rid our homes of some things. And I'm going to call that demonic influence this morning. Rid your home of demonic influence. Now, remember Deuteronomy 6, they had already been told what to saturate their homes with. They they were to make sure that the love of God and the Word of God permeated their homes. But look back at the text here. It says, fear the Lord, worship Him in sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. The word sincerity there has to do with integrity. It has to do with be real in this. Don't let it be mixed with worship of other things. See, a lot of us, we we try to get some Jesus in our house, right? And, And we have the Word of God in places in our home. And sometimes it's open and sometimes it collects dust. Some of you put Bible verses on the refrigerator and the Ten Commandments on the wall. And so we're, we're trying to live out keeping the Word of God in our homes and before our families. But sometimes we're sending a mixed message. And the point here is to be consistent. Don't mix the faith with false deities. And so he talks about the gods. He says, get rid of the gods of your ancestors, the ones that they worshipped beyond the Euphrates River. He says, I want you to get rid of the gods that they worshipped in Egypt. And he goes on to say, choose for yourself in verse 15, if you're going to worship the gods that you worship beyond the Euphrates or the gods that your ancestors worshipped in Egypt or even today the gods of the Amorites that might be in Canaan, what was... Joshua saying, he says, we've got a dark past as a people of God. That though God called Abraham and, and, and he's established a covenant with his people, there have always been times that Israel would turn their back on the true and living God and they were tempted to worship false gods that were no gods at all. That, that's always been a dark part of their history. They have always struggled with that And now they're in this land of Canaan, and they're surrounded by those who are living in rebellion against God, even in the promised land. I remember hearing of, uh, during the Civil War, there was a section of East Tennessee that actually uh, fought for the North instead of for the South, and they were known as the rebellion against the rebellion because they were in hostile territory being in East Tennessee but they were fighting for the north instead of for the south. And in some ways, we can identify with that today in that we are, as Christians, that desire to live according to the Word of God, living lives of rebellion against the rebellion. 
that this world, this sin-fallen world, is in rebellion against God, and we're called to, re- to, to serve God, so we're living in rebellion against the rebellion. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses describes Israel's dark heritage as worshiping strange gods. He calls them old gods, new gods. In verses 16 and 17, he says, they sacrificed to demons who were not God. And and so what Moses was saying, do you realize all of these false gods, whether you're talking about going back to the days of Mesopotamia, whether you're talking about Israel's time in Egypt or Israel in uh, are about to enter into the promised land. He said, these false gods are nothing but demonic deities, little d, distracting you from the true and the living God. And so we need to rid these homes. Well, if it's demonic, what does what is the devil after? What does Scripture tell us? That he tries to pervert the truth? He tries to corrupt the people of God? He comes about to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is the father of lies. So do we allow, some of you this morning, you're like, well, in my home, I'll tell you what, we don't worship the gods of Mesopotamia. I don't even know who they are. We don't worship the gods of Egypt. We're not like the Hindus who have 35 million gods that we worship. And so, Pastor Robbie, you're, you're preaching to the wrong crowd this morning. Well, think about how the devil works. Perversion, corruption, stealing, killing, destroying. What do we allow into our homes? via the various channels of media that we allow in our homes? Do we allow doctrines of demons into our home? Look, look at some of the TV titles. If you just turn on your TV set today, TV shows named Lucifer, Godless, Impastor, Save Me, A Mockery of the Christian Faith, Angel from Hell, not to mention some of the extreme carnality shows that you can find in in cable network television today, extreme sexuality, that this rebellion that we're called to rebel against is saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with this, and yet we're allowing these demonic deities and their practices into our homes. Subtle carnality that can be found in the average sitcom. I remember a pastor saying back in the 1980s that what sitcoms will get you to do is laugh at sin today so that you will accept it as okay tomorrow. And so we find ourselves laughing at it saying, "Eh, you know, I know that's wrong, but that is kind of funny so that tomorrow we'll say, well, is it even wrong at all? We begin glamorizing sexual immorality. We call teen sexuality cute. The world humorizes it, again, so that we will accept it. Now, this week I I became more aware I am totally oblivious to when it comes to video gaming, but evidently that is still very popular. There's just more ways to do that online and and interact. And, And so video games that kids play and From what I have been told, a lot of dads stay up late playing video games. Like Grand Theft Auto, what was interesting is when Kent's car was stolen from the shop right over here, uh, when we went to court with the young men who had stolen his car, the judge said, what do you do in your spare time? And they said, play video games. And the judge said, I hope you're not playing Grand Theft Auto, 
To which one of the young men replied, uh, yes, sir, actually we were. And, and so what we begin to think, we actually want to practice. But video games, and this is just from help from some of you on social media, some of these names, Diablo 3, Mortal Kombat, Dead Space, Mafia. One thing that was common is that the most popular games that we're allowing into our homes that we need to get rid of are, being, are games where you're being rewarded for sexuality, for killing, or for other destructive behaviors. And sometimes I know that here's, here's what some people will say, because this might be an area of controversy for some of you, but some will say, but Pastor Robbie, in this video game, I'm actually a member of the United States military, and I'm fighting the enemy, and so all the blood and guts and glory, something like that, is for a noble cause. And let me tell you why you need to be careful. I have never met a soldier or a law enforcement officer who says, I hope I get to kill someone. In fact, they had rather never to have to do that. And it is when, when punishment has to be executed and justice has to be served, it is not with great joy, it is with great sadness that it had to be done. And so video games that teach that it's fun and a great joy could be putting some things in the hearts and minds of our young people that will have a diminishing return. The same is not only true with violence, it's, it was sexuality and pornography, if you name it. Eventually, the law of diminishing return says the game is not enough anymore. What's next? And so, parents, grandparents, we need to rid our homes of demonic influence, whether it's media, where it's books, whatever it might be, we need to be very sensitive to this. Psalm 19:14, David prayed, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Psalm 23, 7, as we think in our heart, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so those things that we allow in our homes, into our hearts, and into our minds, and into our kids' bedrooms, will become who they are. So rid your home of demonic influence. And finally this morning, resolve to lead your home to live for the Lord. All right, let's come back to the positive side, all right? By the way, you can't create a void. You can't go into your home and say, listen, we're going to get rid of some things, and you start taking out everything that is evil and demonic unless you have something better to replace it with, Right? Didn't Jesus teach us that? What are the demons going to do when you get rid of them? If, if Jesus doesn't come and fill that void and take the place, listen, you need to be able to explain to the next generation that there are certain things that will rob you and, and destroy your life, and, and so you want to remove those things, but always because there's something better. Always because God wants what's best for you. You try to get rid of the evil without offering what is good and what is best, then you're going to create a vacuum that's just going to leave them hungrier. And so resolve to lead your home to live for the Lord. What, what was his resolution here? What was the statement? We all know the statement here. As for me and my house, as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. Joshua was saying, listen, now that we have as a nation settled into the promised land, we're going to have to make some decisions, and it's going to happen at the level of each family. And he says, 
You decide for yourselves who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, make no question about it, we're going to serve the Lord, the true and the living God. We're going to love God, we're going to love each other, we're going to impact our community. And when parents and grandparents agree together to lead with love, to create an environment where God is loved and where God's love is expressed, where they're loving each other and they're impacting their children and the next generation and their community with the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, this home, I promise you, will never be a boring place. The family that's on mission together will be filled with more excitement than any home out there. You won't be missing out on something. I'll tell you one thing about the, 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 the Brown household through the years is we were too busy to be bored. Well, we still are, but, but as our kids were growing up, as we were on mission together and living life together and, and loving Jesus together, and by the way, we weren't always perfect. You know, we, we had our ups and downs, and we had moments of confrontation and discipline, but it was never, the Christian life was never boring. There was always something going on, something to be involved in, something that captivated their imagination for God. Our disciplines promoted in the home, praying together, worshiping together, being on mission together. Integrity and sincerity. Again, not perfect. I'm glad that we're going to be more like Jesus tomorrow, hopefully, than we were today and more like him today than we were yesterday. I'm not saying perfect homes until we get to heaven. We're not going to live that glorified life, right? But I'm saying where we honestly and sincerely desire to be Christ-like and where mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, we're the same at home as we are at church. Nothing to hide. And so my, my kids, I believe you could ask Kent this morning, my kids would tell you, yeah, my mom and dad aren't perfect. They're kind of crazy. They're kind of funny. They're not perfect. But I believe he would also tell you the same Robbie and Tina you see at church, same Robbie and Tina you see at home. We're just the same, with, with sincerity and truth, integrity there. So we grow together. First Peter 4, 8 says, above all else, have fervent love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. And, and so the fact that we're not perfect because we love each other, we continue to grow. And this family, your family, my family, we serve the Lord together, right? We, we are on mission together. And so the corporate church, the church gathered, the church on mission, the church family becomes stronger because there are families here, and I'm looking at so many of you this morning, there are families here that you love serving the Lord together. And when you come to this place of worship, you come ready to serve and to be about that mission. And so that's out of the overflow of what God's doing in your home. And you don't just come to church to receive a blessing. You come to be a blessing and to bless God above all else. Last night, we had a steering team meeting uh, with a steering team that's looking at their facility needs and future facility growth and things like that. And, And as we met, the observation was made that the strength of our church when it comes to outreach have been our families. Our families are out there in the community, in their neighborhood, in their workplaces, on the rec fields, you name it, and they're talking about Jesus unashamedly, and they're inviting people to be a part of what God's doing. And so the home, again, becomes the strength of even the church gathered. 
And it's a privilege for my family to be a part of this larger family. And it's a privilege for me to stand before you with the Word of God to equip your family, to go back into your mission field, that that your home becomes that strategic mission center in this community and ultimately in our world. The church just continues to reap the blessings of that, worshiping, serving, and witnessing together. You want excitement in your home? You don't want your home to be a place where it's boring? I'll tell you, families, if you will resolve in your hearts that we will live for the Lord. As for me and my house, dads, if you will make, I know next Sunday's Father's Day, let me not get too far ahead, but dads, if you will say, listen, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You'll lead your family into the most excitement that they can experience this out of eternity. The greatest days of joy. Yeah, are there moments of sorrow? Are there deep? Listen, it it doesn't make you popular. When Jesus came into this world, there were moments where he seemed popular, right? When he fed the 5,000, when there were big crowds. But what happened when the crowds started to depart? Peter, you know, when Jesus looked at Peter and said, are you going to leave also? Peter said, well, where else should, should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There is no other way. We're not going anywhere. It's not about being liked by this world. It's about being like Jesus. And when we preach the gospel and share the love of Christ, we'll see that's enough. And we'll see many, it won't be all of them, but we'll see many come to faith in Christ as a result. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the example of a warrior leader like Joshua who seemed to know that the most important victory was going to be leading his home say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, I pray that we'll continue to see your hand of faithfulness on our church, on our church family, but on every family. Lord, that we will gather together for corporate worship, celebrating what you're doing in our homes. As Christ is exalted, relationships are restored and strengthened. Lord, I know this morning there are a number of people under the sound of my voice that are hurting because of decisions that they perhaps didn't even make that brought division or other destructive things into their home that they didn't ask for. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the hope of the gospel as well this morning. That you're the God who redeems, you're the God who restores, and along with everybody else here, they can also say the best is yet to come. God's not finished with me as long as I'm breathing, and God's got great things in store. I pray this in Jesus' name.